Welcome to episode 336 of the Microsoft Cloud IT Pro Podcast, recorded live on May 31st, 2023. This is a show about Microsoft 365 and Azure from the perspective of IT pros and end users, where we discuss the topic or recent news and how it relates to you. Microsoft Build has come and gone, and we have some updates to discuss this week regarding announcements made at the conference. As can be expected, there was a bunch of AI-related news around Copilot, ChatGPT, and OpenAI. AI. And then finally, a new SaaS-based data product, Microsoft Fabric. Are you going to catch me up? Because I was on vacation last week, and you would be proud of me, Scott. I turned on my computer, I think, once the entire week, because I actually had to do some podcast stuff. I have tried to catch up on blog posts and news and all of that, but I have not had the time I wanted to to dive in to build stuff. And I saw you put stuff, and I've flagged some articles I saw. But again, I have not gone into depth on anything in particular. So what shiny build stuff should we talk about? So let me catch you up on some Microsoft build stuff. So Microsoft build 2023 happened last week. Two days, you can absolutely go out and watch the on-demand sessions. At this point, it's all out there, ready to go. All the blog posts and things, we'll have links in the show notes and all that good stuff. So I highly recommend everyone go watch the keynotes. Even though keynotes are largely useless, I think it's very interesting to just see the kind of tone and approach around things like AI. I was I was kind of joking around as the keynote was going on. Like my big takeaway from the keynote was that you're going to be able to build co-pilots for your co-pilots to pilot your co-pilots to get you another co-pilot to do something for you. And and I was very confused by this because I had been introduced and I think most of us has been introduced to co-pilots as marketing terms and not as a a feature like it's a product versus a feature like github copilot is you know github's ability to do ai generated ml generated code for you m365 copilot like copilot for word is the same thing it's a large language model that can respond to prompts in microsoft word and Microsoft kind of came out and they said, sure, we have Copilot and it's a marketing term. So it's it's a product and a feature. And now we're going to let you go build your own Copilots as well. So not only are there the existing Copilots, but theoretically you could build a Copilot for another Copilot. Like say you wanted to, I don't know, you wanted to build a Copilot for Word that interacted with Microsoft. Microsoft's Copilot, like that would theoretically be possible. Like you could do some own some of your own prompt engineering and prompt hacking, and inject on top of their LLM <laughs> with your LLM <laughs> and and potential responses or context to your business and and things like that on top of it. So that was kind of interesting to go through and see. I also recommend that everybody watch the keynote that happened right after that. 
which I believe was with Kevin Scott. He's the recently crowned VP of AI or something like that at Microsoft. I forget his exact title, but he kind of goes into more of that ecosystem and everything that's going on. So a couple things. Uh, Copilots for everybody. Like Absolutely, you can go out and build your own copilots. There's a service inside of Azure called Azure AI Studio, where you can go and train these models and design your co-pilots and release them out there. Some of the demoware I saw was kind of it was akin to the old like chatbot in five minute kind of demos that you used to be able to do. I think it's a little richer than that, just based on kind of the language models and, and what they have access to today and just kind of how far prompt hacking has has come along, or I guess prompt engineering to get things to where they need to be. The other interesting thing that was announced was that plugins are coming to chat GPT integration in Bing. So today, Bing kind of runs on the, I think, the GPT-3.5 Turbo model, and it is coming over to GPT-4. And when it does that, it will have access to the same exact plugins that you have access to if you are a premium subscriber at OpenAI today. So if you're already paying OpenAI the monthly fee for access to the paid version of that product, you can already flip over to the GPT-4 model. And with GPT-4, you get plugins. So plugins will let you do things like have more context around kind of these outside data ecosystems. So some of the examples that they brought up, because it's it's Bing, it's kind of consumer grade and, and consumerware, yep. were things like OpenTable, Zillow, you know, like, hey, I want you to go out and build me a table of houses that are within five mile radius of this address that meet these criteria and put them in a table and rank them by price and number of bedrooms, number of bathrooms, things like that. So plugins are are coming and and rapidly coming and I'm kind of looking forward to those. I think they'll be nifty especially once, you know, some more stuff comes out there. Like I would love to see a plugin for something like Reddit. Like that's built around the Reddit API and not just being scraping Reddit and it has context of things like upvotes and kind of hot articles and and things like that. I think it's going to make data mining with some of the LLMs just a lot smoother at the end of the day. How do these plugins work then? Where do they live? Is this Again, I haven't read up on this at all. Is this plugins to connect Bing to services or plugins that you can put like in Bing? For instance, you said build me a table of houses on Zillow. Does that return? Is that a plugin for Bing to go out to Zillow and then it just returns on like the Bing chat UI? Or how, I guess, how do those plugins work and where do they sit? Does that make sense? Yes. So the plugins, my understanding of them, and I haven't written one of these, so don't like hold my feet to the fire. My understanding is plugins are executed within the context of chat GPT, but then okay. they basically have connectors to go out and be able to interact with those other services. So you can almost think about it as like a plugin is exposing another API to chat GPT. 
GPT so that it can go out and interact with that data. And then that data is returned in a format and in a manner that is all up friendly to chat GPT and, and being able to have everything just kind of come back and be able to be massaged into the right format. So you, you're likely, it's not like, I don't think it's like Bing has gone out and indexed all of Zillow. It's more like it's calling Zillow with a pre-engineered prompt. And then Zillow has an API endpoint that's able to respond to that prompt based on either a data set that they've built out, or maybe they even call into another LLM on their side to get some data back from it. And then they return all that to the client, munge it together, and it's all kind of ready to go. Okay, I think that's making sense. And I'm still trying... It's basically like APIs. Like It's it's just API interaction. I think the interesting thing is it's almost like APIs talking to APIs just because of the human language nature of LLM prompts and kind of how, how they're constructed, right? It's, it's, it's not like you are writing a database statement and you're saying, you know, set option strict on. You're going in just human language and you're saying, hey, large language model, I need you to imagine that you are a CEO at blah, 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 blah company and you always act in this manner and you're going to be kind and you're going to respond in this way. And you're going to be held to this set of standards in your response. You know, where I think we're used to more like just arbitrary, like binary on off kinds of things as we're, yep. you know, maybe scripting or, or interacting with programs today or, or writing our own. So it's a little more free flowing than that. So I, I don't know. We'll see what comes out of it. Like developers are writing these then and essentially submitting these to yes. ChatGPT or Bing and saying, hey, here's my plugin. I want to bring in this additional data or add this additional functionality to GPT. So is it adding it to chat GPT? Is this adding it to open AI? Is it adding it? Like this is also, I was starting to look through this. This is getting all kind of confusing because everybody kind of uses chat GPT as a default, but it looks like open AI is now using Bing as the search experience for chat GPT. But I don't think Bing chat is necessarily chat GPT and trying to keep all the terminology straight in my head too. So OpenAI is the company. They're the big, broad company. They build a bunch of models and the learning models and all of that. Yep. Yep. They build a bunch of products. One of those products is called ChatGPT. And then within ChatGPT, you have various flavors of language models that are available to you. Basically, like, what's the switch I want to flip in ChatGPT for the types of responses that I want to get back? Those are all the GPT models you hear about. So you hear about like GPT 3.5, GPT 3.5 Turbo, GPT 4. Those are kind of the features. Right. Built by OpenAI, right? And then ChatGPT is sitting on top of those different. Different flavors of GPT 3354. Chat GPT is just branding. Like Chat GPT is a website. It's the thing you go to to interact with a set of features that you turn on or off. And the models are the features that you go back and forth and you turn on and off that way. So you could go in, like if you're a paid subscriber to Chat GPT today, you can go into Chat GPT and you can say, okay, I want to work with the GPT 35 Turbo model. And the GPT 35 Turbo model 
has a certain set of constructs. It was built on top of one large language model. Or you can say, I want to do GPT-4. And probably the biggest difference between like some of the older models and GPT-4 is that GPT-4 is the one that has the plugins and it can do like real live internet searches. So remember, like when you chat GPT initially came out and they said, okay, we have this model that you can interact with and don't worry about it. One of the big constraints of it was that model was only trained on a data set that was current up to late 2021. Yeah, I remember there was a date there. I couldn't remember if it was 2020 or 2021, but I do remember that where you'd go ask it stuff and it'd be like, my data is limited to data up to this point in time because it couldn't go grab recent news, recent articles. Didn't really touch the internet. Correct. So GPT-4 opens that up, lets it go and do more real-time contextual searches. And the Bing part of it is Bing is using (laughs) the GPT-4 model or transitioning to it because they will be as they bring like plugin integrations and things like that. Yep. So Bing is using a large language model in the background. And then the background of chat GPT, they're also using Bing is their search engine. So what they've said is like GPT-4, when you're using that model and it needs to reach out to the internet and it needs to do a search in real time, it's going to use Bing as the search engine of choice to do that. Got it. So that's how they're kind of connecting GPT-4 and to be able to search some of the internet as leveraging Bing, but then Bing is using gpt Four in the background as well. It's a little weird. So <laughs> Bing would be the backend search engine for ChatGPT, yep. and ChatGPT would be the backend large language model for Bing. Okay, you could almost like draw like a weird circle and put some double arrows on it, and it, it would make for you know a pretty funky Visio diagram. That's what I was trying to kind of wrap my head around as we were talking through this, is how all of those were tied together. But what you just explained makes sense, and then. They're using all these same standards then for plugins that if you write a plugin for OpenAI, because of the weird circle model, all those plugins will work in ChatGPT and they'll work in Bing and they'll work in Copilot and all of that because it's all just one big happy circular family. Correct. Like theoretically, that's yeah, that's that's the way it all goes. So we'll see if it manifests <laughs> that way. But <laughs> and then you can go build your own copilot on top of all that using those add-ins and yeah. You can. So you can go out into Azure AI Studio today and you can do that. Another place that Copilot is coming in the Microsoft ecosystem that I thought was kind of interesting as I spend more and more time there is Power BI. So there's going to be a Power BI desktop developer mode that's going to enable a workflow for interacting with, well, I guess a couple things. So you're going to get Copilot integration on Power BI, and then you're also going to get integration and some other things coming to Power BI that I thought were kind of exciting. Like, I, I would totally use that all the time. I'm tired of sending the same PBIX file to 30 people and then wondering where they've uploaded it to. Do you feel overwhelmed by trying to manage your Office 365 environment? Are you facing unexpected issues that disrupt your company's productivity? Intelligent is here to help. Much like you take your car to the mechanic that has specialized knowledge on how to best keep your car running, Intelligent helps you with your Microsoft Cloud environment because that's their expertise. Intelligent keeps up with the latest updates in the Microsoft Cloud to help keep your business running smoothly and ahead of the curve. Whether you are a small organization with just a few users up to an organization of several thousand employees, they want to partner with you to implement and administer your Microsoft Cloud technology. 
Visit them at intellijink.com slash podcast. That's I-N-T-E-L-L-I-G-I-N-K dot com slash podcast for more information or to schedule a 30-minute call to get started with them today. Remember, Intelligent focuses on the Microsoft Cloud so you can focus on your business. Oh, Copilot everywhere. You know where else Copilot's coming? Everywhere. To Edge. <laughs> Did you see Copilot is coming to Edge too? Yes. So this one could be interesting. This one of some of them intrigues me a little bit where it essentially uses the website as context. So some of these news articles, or if you pull up a website, this one would be interesting to play with Copilot to get like a summary of a web page or to find out more about the web page. This one is one of the co-pilots that intrigues me more. I haven't played with like Power Apps or Power Automate or some of those co-pilots. I'm really looking forward to getting my hands on all the co-pilots and seeing which ones I actually like and I find useful and which ones are just kind of eh. So for Power Automate, I haven't used it much, but I'm not a large Power Automate person. Like I'm not using it in my daily life, but I do use Power BI almost daily and okay. I've got Power BI desktop open all the time. So there's a quick little video preview. It's actually on the news site from like Microsoft Global Comms. I'll put a link in the show notes to that, which is Copilot in Power BI. And you can kind of see how it works. So one of the interesting things to me about Copilot and Power BI is you know how Power BI has kind of the Q&A widgets and things available today where yep. you can go in and it understands your data set and said, so, you know, show me sales by quarter for the past two years ranked by industry of company, blah, 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 or industry of customer. Uh, and, and it can do all that. So that already exists today, but all that's doing is building out like singular visualizations for you. The Copilot in Power BI lets you go in and it says, hey, here's a data set. Like, here's a database and here's some tables in it. Like, maybe go figure that out for me and then tell me what I can do with it. Oh, and by the way, go ahead and actually build out the PBI for me. It's kind of like, I, I get it's all demoware and when it works, it works. <laughs> uh, but it, it's super cool just to kind of like see it just, you know, get released and go against things like that. Because if you think about it, like lots of companies are the same at the end of the day. Like if you're a publicly traded company, like the way you're keeping the books is going to be very similar to all other publicly traded companies, usually in your country, because that's some type of regulated industry. So there's going to be certain requirements for you for reporting your data, for storing your data. Like it's always going to have to come out in a common format anyway. So it's one of those things that you can absolutely train a model on and then have that model come back and kind of immediately have context to your data, but it already knows things like common schemas, common terminology, all, all that kind of stuff. Interesting. This is, I'm Scott, I'm committing to not adding everything to my list. This one, I don't use Power BI enough. This is not going to get added to my list, but it would be interesting. And maybe if I started pulling more data into it, yeah, I'll have to play with it. Maybe. This is a maybe. How about a maybe on my list? Maybe not. A maybe on your list. Okay. So maybe one last one for today before we run out of time, because I think we both have meetings coming up. And this was in the same article with introducing Copilot and Power BI was introducing Microsoft Fabric. I have seen a boatload of headlines about Microsoft Fabric. I am not a data guy, and this looks like it's tied in a lot more to 
Synapse, data factory, data warehousing, data science, that type of stuff from the headlines. And what I've gathered is that it's like this cross cloud data ingestion thing where I can like go grab all my data from all the things everywhere and pull it into Microsoft Fabric and integrate it into some of these data analytics tools into Synapse Data Factory. Is that right? Or like what? What is Fabric at a high level? Because I also don't know that we have time to dive into it in detail. I don't know. I don't know <laughs> enough about Fabric. All right. Fabric. Well, first of all, it's a horribly named product. I think some marketers fell asleep at the wheel <laughs> again when they came up with the name for it. Yeah, because <laughs> there are already things called Fabric in the Azure ecosystem and, and in the broader Microsoft ecosystem as well. There's lots of Fabric, like... My first thought yeah. was App Fabric. I can't remember what App Fabric was from. Was that a SharePoint thing? <laughs> well, it was in Azure. There's App Fabric, Service Fabric. Yeah, yeah. There, there's Fabrics for Fabrics, fabrics all the things. So Microsoft Fabric is a SaaS service. So it's kind of interesting in that it is something that wraps a bunch of Azure services while not necessarily being Azure itself. What I mean by that is if you think about some of these things, like we were talking about Power BI like yep. a couple minutes ago, Power BI is a SaaS service. It's licensed by the user. Like you don't go out and buy a Power BI tenant and then buy a Power BI database and then kind of put all these pieces together yourself. You say like, oh no, I'm just going to buy a per user license to this thing called Power BI and it's going to let me do visualizations based on a bunch of data sources that exist out there. So it's it's a little bit of a weird model for me to wrap my head around, I guess, is just like data as a service that's not necessarily... Azure focused. It's like it's Microsoft focused. So it's not even M365. Like it's a whole new weird thing. But at a high level, it's it's a SaaS offering that brings together a bunch of building blocks for you inside of a single service offering. So while you have all these component pieces and parts like Power BI and Synapse and Data Factory and Azure Data Explorer and all these things that sit out there, you know, they are disjointed. So you could go down the path of picking up a Power BI license for your users and then saying, okay, I'm going to use my existing Azure Data Explorer thing over here. But then what do you do when you want to go grab data from like a raw data set from a data lake and transform it with Spark? Okay, well, now I got to go create a, a storage account and activate hierarchical namespace on it. And then, oh, by the way, I might need like a, a Synapse Spark pool to spin that up. And you just end up with all these pieces that you need to manage. And it might be a little bit easier to have it in a managed offering, which is kind of what Fabric does. So it brings together Data Factory, Synapse Data Engineering, Synapse Data Warehouse, Synapse Data Science, Synapse Real-Time Analytics, Azure Data Explorer, Power BI. And it brings together cloud storage as well, and even multi-cloud storage into a single 
service offering. So now, rather than saying, hey, user, go to Power BI and then go talk to the developer over here to get a connection to that data lake and then go talk to the developer over there to get a connection to their their data set and then, oh, by the way, go talk to this other developer in this other team who's been doing this Delta Lake project and blah, 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 you can just have it all sit in one place, which is your one lake, which is kind of like your foundational data set. And then all these services automatically have connectivity and they know how to talk to that one lake and consume data out of it. So it's a little weird. Like you get all these Azure services, you get some M365 or like data SaaS services like Power BI. Then you can also pull in data from outside sources. Like we'll see how it goes. I, I would recommend there's a, in the getting started docs, there's a fabric terminology bit of documentation. And it takes you through like general terms of the service, like, hey, what's a workspace? You know, how do they measure capacity? Things like that. But then it breaks down into the individual pieces and components, like inside Data Factory, inside of Microsoft Fabric, what do you get inside of uh, Synapse Data Science, inside of when it's wrapped in Microsoft Fabric, what do you get? So I can see it like making things a lot easier for people. People. You know, if you think about like, you know, just that headache of like getting access to a data set and getting like my VM and my managed identity to be able to talk to this storage account or this thing over here, this database over here, like that's just painful, right? Like, why not just have it all managed by the service and wrapped around a common data layer? Like, that makes sense. So I think that's kind of like how the service manifests and comes out. I haven't seen, and I, I didn't do too deep a dive on it about things like pricing and what that's going to look like, like impacts to existing users. It's kind of like if you're a Power BI, uh, the, the way it is in the docs, if you go to the docs today and you say, hey, I want to start a fabric preview trial, it immediately opens up with what if you're an existing Power BI user? And I think that kind of gives you a big hint as the target audience and and where they're going with it. Yeah, they do have, like I was looking through some of the documentation where they have by Fabric now or by Pro. And I don't see though, to your point, I don't see purchase fabric capacity. There's some pricing, but man, some of the naming in here too, Scott, like I want to go back to you with marketing. I was flipping through this article and now you have Data Lake, but you also have One Lake Data. And then you have, there was something else in there that I saw that was named really similar to that. I think that Fabric Terminology site is going to be a good site to keep handy as you go sort through what all of this stuff is. I think the big thing to keep in mind today is, like I said, like it is a wrapped SaaS offering. So you don't go and buy Data Factory by itself anymore. Like you, or you still can. Like I'm, I'm not saying you can't do that. Like absolutely, like the component pieces and parts are there. But if you walk into it from a service offering side of things, it's just I'm going to go buy Fabric, and Fabric has a Data Factory component within it. Yeah. Well, it looks like. Because of that, as you need, depending on the size of your data, it looks like there's different capacities and different levels. And there's this isn't just going to be go buy fabric, but you're going to have to buy different levels or different capacity of fabric based on the amount of data, how much is going to be in there, et cetera, et cetera. Capacity is an interesting one. So it's a 
SaaS products. So it, it's a multi-tenant kind of product. So you, you're basically buying a fabric tenant is, is really what you're coming into when you go ahead and purchase that. So each fabric tenant has capacity that's measured in things like compute. Like, hey, I'm spinning up Synapse in the background. What are the different SKUs that are available to me? How many cores is that going to come with? So immediately, like if you start going down the fabric licensing hole and you get into like capacity and SKUs, it opens up with compute where you've got to figure out like what's the SKU in fabric to the equivalent SKU in Power BI and what does that translate into V cores and how much you use along the way. Gets a little bit weird on that side. The whole one link concept is interesting as well because it's not a data lake that you manage. So I guess coming from Azure storage, you know, my take on it is like just bring your data lake, right? Like you've already got it out there. It's just a, a Gen 2 storage account, GPV2 with hierarchical namespace enabled, blah, blah, blah. Yep. But now with OneLake, because it's a multi-tenant model, they've effectively like provisioned some storage on the back end for you. So I think that's going to be interesting to see like how they just price capacity and, and kind of figure all that out. And then they built connectors from things like OneLake over to all the other clouds as well, to, to Microsoft's cloud, and then over to S3 and GCP as well. So if you have a OneLake, there's a connector in there where you can go and say like, hey, I have an S3 bucket that sits over here that maybe has a data set that you want in it. And you can actually connect your OneLake over to that S3 data set. And then the proxy layer of OneLake just makes it super easy for Power BI to talk to it. Like Power BI doesn't need to know that it's talking to S3. It just needs to know that it's talking to OneLake and then you're done. Interesting. Lots of stuff to go figure out. This is not one on my list either. This is not a high priority for me, given what I do, but with all the news I've seen around it, about it, I figured I should go dig into it a little bit. I think you're going to see it more than you think in your world because your customers are Microsoft 365 SaaS customers who use things like Power BI. So if Power BI is an entrance point today, like looking at the way that it's positioned, it was announced, and the way the documentation's oriented and things like that, it's kind of like Microsoft is positioning it as every Power BI customer should just become a Fabric customer. And then your life will be a lot easier, right? Because you get all the compute and it's managed and identities are managed and you don't need to worry about security and things like that. So if you and your ecosystem have customers who are doing Power BI, it might be something you want to spend some more time with because I bet that's where like a bunch of the bleed out comes from is existing Power BI customers going like, huh, should I just be doing Power BI anymore or should I be doing uh, Fabric? I feel like it'll depend a lot on the pricing. Just looking through, I posted a link to it in Discord too, looking through the whole Microsoft Fabric licensing, it feels way more confusing than Power BI. But I guess to your point, if you're starting to bundle in some of those locations where your data might be housed, maybe it's that the bundle does end up being cheaper. The licensing does not look like it's going to be straightforward based on that Fabric licenses. So I'll be curious and I'm going to keep an eye on it. It's going to take time to get there because Fabric is kind of, because you're buying pre-bundled capacity. So now you're back to like this weird model of saying like, oh, okay, like what's the skew I get and what's the capacity that 
comes with it along the way, which can get confusing pretty quickly. Well, with that, I should probably go jump to my next meeting. I can let you go. We've been chatting for a while now. All right. We can continue on Friday because our recording schedule is a bit odd with some vacations coming up. But we will talk to you again in like two days for more topics. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Ben. Thanks a lot, Scott. We'll talk to you later. If you enjoyed the podcast, go leave us a five-star rating in iTunes. It helps to get the word out so more IT pros can learn about Office 365 and Azure. If you have any questions you want us to address on the show or feedback about the show, feel free to reach out via our website, Twitter, or Facebook. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.